This is a work of fiction. Honest. Ragbag presents Brollywood, episode three. Written and performed by Frank Burton. The story you're listening to right now is being released as a book. By the way, it will also be called Brollywood. It's the third in the Ragbag series. The first two being Everything I Am and Getting Away with It. Don't worry if you're not familiar with those books or the original podcast that spawned them. This is a good place to start. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting this show by buying several copies of all three books and giving them away to everyone you know, or just give one book to one person. That's a reasonable start. Let's get on with the story. So, this is the story. The best story Noddy ever told me. It's about a multi-millionaire called Marshall Grant. Not everyone would agree, said Noddy, but I believe Marshall Grant was a great man. Some folks will have you believe there's no such thing as a good multi-millionaire. Multi-millionaires shouldn't exist in a world that includes abject poverty. It's a fair point, I suppose, but from what I know about Grant, aside from his own personal fortune, which he'd always felt rather uncomfortable about, he'd gone out of his way to make people's lives better. His staff were paid generously and treated fairly. His company had an environmental policy years before anybody else did. This was the 1970s. Hearing a businessman talk about his concerns about pollution was like hearing an aardvark express concern over sustainable ant populations. He even paid his taxes properly while everyone else went offshore. By all accounts, he was a warm, friendly presence. True, he liked the sound of his own voice and if he caught you in conversation it was hard to get away. Maybe he had an egotistical streak, only to be expected from a man in his position. Or maybe he was just one of those people who enjoyed a good chinwag. As it turned out, it was this particular personality trait that led to his undoing. One morning, sometime in the summer of 1978, Grant called to book an appointment with his bank manager. The manager happened to be free that lunchtime, so they ended up meeting an hour or so later. The meeting began with some small talk, mostly focused on a discussion about the latest cricket results. The manager happily indulged Grant's waffling on about sport. He was a valued customer with 33 million stashed away in a savings account. Grant could talk about cricket all day if that's what suited him. But conversation eventually moved on to financial matters. Grant was asking for a favour, an unusual but significant one. He intended to withdraw £32 million in cash from his savings account. You know me, said Grant. It was true, his bank manager did indeed know him. They'd met on many occasions, during which time Grant had shared all sorts of personal information about his home life, his philosophy, the moral codes he lived his life by. So it came as no surprise to learn that Grant planned to withdraw the majority of his savings in order to donate it directly to people in need. I'm not doing this for show, said Grant. In fact, it's extremely important that no one knows about this. 
I'm going to be driving around in a van with £32 million cash in the back. Have you seen the van? Ford Transit parks outside. There are 32 stops on our itinerary. A million is going to a homeless shelter. Another million is going to a children's home. I have a friend with me who'll take the cash directly to their door. No one will know it's from me. I want this to be an entirely ego-free experience. I'm not doing it to make myself look good. I'm doing it to help. It's as simple as that. That really does sound wonderful, said the bank manager. I applaud your selflessness, Mr Grant. I really do. Thank you, said Grant. However, said the bank manager, a much easier way of going about this would be to donate the money via bank transfer. It can be done anonymously. I've looked into that, said Grant. It doesn't appeal to me. I want to be there in person when the money is handed over. I want to see it physically taking place in front of my eyes. Otherwise, it just doesn't feel real. I completely understand, said the bank manager. This can be arranged in due course. So, here's the favour, said Grant. I need the cash in the back of that van as quickly as possible. I realise you don't hold £32 million in cash on the premises. I'm just hoping you can arrange for the transportation of these funds as soon as possible. Of course, said the manager. I can get straight onto that for you and should have an estimated time of arrival as soon as I get off the phone. Can I offer you another coffee? Grant accepted the offer of a second cup of coffee. By the time the cup was finished, confirmation had come through that a secure shipment of £32 million was on its way to the bank and would arrive within 45 minutes. Grant had a third cup of coffee. Less than an hour later, having signed the relevant paperwork, Grant and his assistants departed in their transit van. Later that afternoon, Grant's bank manager wrote a letter to be sent to Grant's home address, confirming the details of their conversation and wishing him all the best in his charitable work. The manager added a personal note to say how impressed he was by Grant's extraordinary generosity. While it is not in my professional interest to say so, the bank manager added, I think you have done a great thing. I applaud you for it. The letter arrived two days later. A further two days passed before Grant got around to reading it. Shortly after reading the letter, Grant called his bank manager on the phone. He was told that today was the bank manager's day off. Grant spoke to the bank manager's secretary, insisting that he speak to him right away, whether he's in the office or not. Fifteen minutes later, the bank manager called Grant on his home number. Good afternoon, he said. I don't need to hear that, Grant retorted. Please tell me you didn't write this letter to me. It certainly looks like your signature and it's written on headed paper, but please explain to me what's going on here. What is it about the letter that isn't clear? said the bank manager. Everything, Grant replied. I hope you don't think my personal remark was unprofessional, said the bank manager. I apologise wholeheartedly, Mr Grant. It wasn't my place to say whether your actions were laudable or not. What actions? said Grant. What do you mean? said the bank manager. I mean, to what actions are you referring? Please do fill me in. You withdrew £32 million from your savings account, Mr Grant. I understand this was with the intention of making a series of charitable donations. No, I didn't, Grant replied firmly. I hate to contradict you, Mr Grant, said the bank manager, but yes, you did. I was with you at the time. We spoke about the scheme in some detail. No, we didn't, said Grant. I'm sorry, sir, I don't understand. 
When are you claiming this happened? This happened on Tuesday, Mr Grant. I have your signatures to prove it. What time on Tuesday? You arrived at 12 noon and left at one thirty. I can check the exact time if you need me to. There's no need, said Grant. I was in a meeting in our company's head office at the time. The meeting ran from 12 noon until 2pm. There were 15 other people present, all of whom can vouch for me being there. Let me make this perfectly clear. I did not have a meeting with you on Tuesday. I really don't know how we're going to resolve this, Mr Grant, said the bank manager. I have witnesses too. My secretary made you two cups of coffee. Various other members of staff were present at the time too, not least of all the security staff who handled the cash. You made a point of shaking each of them by hand. I'm sorry to repeat myself, said Grant, but no, I didn't. Noddy paused from his story, studying my face to see if I'd figured it out yet. What do you reckon? he said. What's going on here, Frank? I honestly don't know, I said. My best guess would be Grant had a twin brother. You're very close, said Noddy. Really, I said. My other guess would have been that he had some kind of memory issue, or even something like multiple personality disorder, where one persona has no memory of what the other persona has done. Not a bad theory, said Noddy, but that's not what happened. So, what happened? Would you like to take another guess? You were very close with the twin brother thing. OK, I said. So, Grant wasn't there himself. It was someone who looked like Grant, but it wasn't his twin brother because he hasn't got one, so... It can't have been an impersonator, can it? Why not, said Noddy. You mentioned that the bank manager knew him well. He'd met with him many times. This wasn't a quick meeting. They chatted about the cricket before getting down to business. How could an impersonator get away with something like that? They'd have to look exactly like him. They'd have to forge his signature perfectly too. How could they do all of that? With great difficulty, said Noddy. That operation took years of preparation. So that's what it was, I said. An impersonator. Not just any impersonator, said Noddy. It was me. I stopped breathing for a moment. Then I laughed out loud. It's true, said Noddy. <laughs> I believe you, I said. I just think it's hilarious. It is quite funny, I suppose, said Noddy. It's difficult for me to see it that way because I spent years getting into character. Mostly it was the voice. He'd made various appearances on radio and we gathered together as many recordings as we could. It wasn't just a matter of getting the accent right or the tone. The challenge was capturing the essence of the man. This needed to be more than just mimicry. He'd never appeared on television as far as I knew. In any case, this was the 1970s, before VHS taping. If I happened to catch a clip of him on the news, I'd have to commit the whole thing to memory. Luckily, Grant made a number of public appearances at conferences and business seminars. I sat in the audience paying close attention to his body language, his facial expressions, his physical characteristics. That was important too, the way he actually looked. This may seem hard to believe, but I look nothing like Marshall Grant. We weren't the same age. We differed in height by at least four inches. So how did you manage to pass yourself off as him? I said. By capturing the man's essence, said Noddy. If you can do that, it doesn't matter how tall you are. No one is going to notice. Recognising a person has very little to do with what that person looks like. 
It's all about what that person feels like. From all the research I've done into the psychology of this sort of thing, and from all the times I've successfully impersonated a person who looks nothing like me, my firm conviction is that sight is by far the most overrated sense. In Marshall Grant's case, this theory worked very much to my advantage. I may have dressed like him, worn the same pair of glasses, had my hair parted at the exact same angle, but really, I looked nothing like Marshall Grant. However, I sounded exactly like him. As I say, I'd spent hours studying the audio recordings. We were indistinguishable in terms of voice. But I would argue even the voice wasn't all that important. Smell? Sure, we wore the same aftershave. That was easy. There was something else, something indefinable, that I'd somehow managed to capture. I've mentioned it already, the man's essence. What does that mean, though? I said. How do you capture a man's essence? It takes a long time, he said, but it can be done. The techniques are very difficult to put into words. Impossible, actually. The process takes place at such a deep subconscious level. That's it, actually. That's the key to it all. It's more than a simple impersonation. Much more than that. It's becoming that person on a subconscious level. I spent so much time studying Marshall Grant, walking his walk, speaking his words, thinking his thoughts, that eventually I became Marshall Grant. Does that make any kind of sense? Kind of, I said. You don't sound too sure, said Noddy. I'm not, I said. It happened, said Noddy. I don't doubt that, I said. I'm just struggling to get my head around the fact that you were able to do it. I can prove it if you like, he said. What are you going to do, I said. Your Marshall Grant impression? I have no idea what he sounded like. No, said Noddy. But you know what Frank Burton sounds like, right? There was something in the way he pronounced those words that made me stop and stare at him. Noddy was sitting on a chair in the corner. I was lying on my bunk looking over at him. Say that again, I said. I said, you know what Frank Burton sounds like? I laughed. <laughs> Very good, I said. Good impression, man. Really? He said, still using my voice. Isn't this my voice? No, it's my voice. You do it very well. So, what does Noddy sound like? He said. Noddy sounds like Noddy, I replied, not entirely sure of myself. I'm surprised you haven't noticed, said Noddy, and I hope you don't think I was making fun of you or anything, but I've been using your voice since the day I started talking to you. I would have started talking sooner, but I had to get it right first. This is what I do. I laughed again. Then I stopped laughing, and I thought about what Noddy was saying. So, what does your actual voice sound like? Noddy didn't speak for a moment. Then, in my voice, he said, Honestly, Frank, I don't know. Why not? It's been so long since I used my own voice. I've been in character for years, decades in fact. I know I claimed a while ago that I didn't speak to the authorities for my own protection. That's true enough, but also, I'm not sure I could actually speak to them if I tried. Not in my own voice, anyway. I've spent so long pretending to be other people, I've literally forgotten how to be myself. So, this Marshall Grant thing wasn't an isolated incident. You didn't just do this once. I did it a handful of times, he said. It's a lot of hard work, and there's so much that could potentially go wrong. I was never caught for any of those scams, but no doubt I would have been if they'd carried on. As a matter of fact, it was security cameras that killed the whole thing. They were a risk factor even in the 1970s. When I pulled off the Marshall Grant heist, 
there were security cameras in the building which I was able to skillfully avoid. Ten years later that would have been impossible. There'd have been CCTV in every room, plus the outside of the building. Sure, even if I'd been caught directly on camera, that doesn't mean I'd actually be identified as me. Security cameras just add that one little extra risk factor that made the whole thing unviable. It was fun and hugely profitable while it lasted, but it couldn't last forever. I had so many questions. I wasn't sure which one to ask first. So the money, I said, £32 million, you stole it. You kept it. It was yours. Yes and no, said Noddy. It's a community thing. The money went to the community. Various members of the community were involved in the heist itself. It wasn't just me on my own. It must have made you incredibly wealthy though, right? It made a difference to the community, he said. I'd love to tell you more about the community, and I will one day. Ask me a different question. OK, I said. Who else did you impersonate? There were three others, to be precise. The most famous being a certain Sir Richard Branson. Who? Richard Branson, the billionaire? I was joking, I said. I know who he is. I didn't know he'd been ripped off for millions of pounds, though. Very few people know where he was, said Noddy. No one knows Marshall Grant was either. If the story ever came out, it would be an utter humiliation. Nonetheless, I did it. I impersonated Richard Branson and it very nearly destroyed his career. What did you do? Meet with his bank manager? No, that wouldn't have worked with Branson. There was a much easier way in. He was a big fan of impromptu meetings. He was the kind of boss who'd grab you by the arm in the corridor and say, Hey you, you're promoted to vice chairman. It became clear quite early on that this kind of attitude was Branson's weak spot. All I needed to do was collar one of his finance officers, stick a sheet of paper in his hand and say, Hey, our new PR company needs paying pronto. 30 million plus VAT, whatever that means. Details right here. Keep the whole thing hush, yeah? Our old PR company is still under contract. That's a very good impression, I said. I know, said Noddy. And the thing is, with this job, the impression was the hard part. We figured out the plan early on. Access to the company's head office was easy enough once I was in character. We'd marked a couple of suitable finance officers most likely to take the bait. The trouble was, I couldn't just stumble in there, reel off my Branson impression and expect to be taken seriously. I needed to capture the essence of the man. Yeah, I said. This is the thing I'm not quite understanding yet. I wish I could be fully on board with this story, but capturing a person's essence is maybe too much of an abstract concept. I can make it into a concrete concept if you like, said Noddy. It may freak you out a little. Concrete how? I said. Kind of like this, he said. Noddy rose from his chair. He walked across the room and he walked back again. I recognised the walk. It was my walk. He performed the same action again and again. As he walked, he repeated the phrase, Too much of an abstract concept. Too much of an abstract concept. Too much of an abstract concept. Despite the fact that he'd been using my voice the whole time, each time I heard the repetition of those words, I had to touch my own lips to make sure I hadn't said it myself. And when he sat down, Noddy had a beard. He had a beard that hadn't been there before. Not just any beard, it was my beard. It was my face. Noddy had captured my essence and there I was, staring 
of the purest possible likeness of me. And then I was gone again. Noddy was there, bald, clean-shaven, staring back at me as though nothing had happened. Impressive, isn't it? he said. Now you've lost me, said Jamie. Great story, by the way, but that last part. The Richard Branson stuff? No, I'm buying that a hundred percent, but Noddy's beard. You can't expect me to believe that. That's the only part I can actually verify, I snapped. Sorry, I added. It's true, though. Anything Noddy told me in prison is really just hearsay. I even tried investigating the Marshall Grant thing a few years ago, but there's no official records, not even any rumours floating around. It's all been forgotten about. The interesting thing is, the most notable fact in Grant's Wikipedia entry is that he sold his business in 1979 shortly after Noddy claims to have stolen most of his savings. He retired at the age of 38, emigrated to Cyprus and never worked again. I can't say I feel too sorry for the man, he wasn't ruined financially, but it's obvious that what Noddy did completely changed this man's life. I don't know his reasons for quitting, maybe it was nothing to do with the theft, or maybe the theft didn't actually happen and Noddy was stringing me along. But let's assume that it happened. Surely the incident must have been a blow to Grant's confidence. He'd seen how easily his wealth could have been taken away from him, and so he retreated from the public eye, never to be heard from again. He's still alive, by the way. I wrote him a letter once, asking him if the stories I'd heard were true or not. I told him he could speak to me in confidence. I never heard back from him. It's like he didn't even want to acknowledge it had happened. He'll have been protecting himself, said Jamie. You could be anyone. You could be a journalist. You could be Noddy himself for all he knows. True. That's not what I was talking about anyway, said Jamie. I find it hard to believe that Noddy was able to convince you he had facial hair. He didn't exactly, I said. I'm not sure if I actually physically saw a beard on his face. What I did see was a perfect imitation of one of my own facial expressions. It was so perfectly done, Noddy literally looked nothing like himself. It was like staring into a mirror just for that one moment. It's a magic trick, the kind of thing... Darren Brown does on stage, psychological suggestion. Also, bear in mind the state I was in at the time. I'd been in prison for three months, spending the vast majority of my time locked in a cell. I'm pretty sure that makes you susceptible to these things. So, when I saw what appeared to be an exact replica of my face, sitting across from me, a part of my brain added a beard to the picture. That's just the way my mind processed it. It's like if a man was standing in the middle of a crowded street and he suddenly started hovering three feet off the ground. You can guarantee a whole bunch of people will walk right past him and it's not because they haven't seen him levitating. Their minds have filled in the blanks. A rational part of their brain has drawn a picture of a stepladder underneath him. I think that's what happened with Noddy's beard. OK, maybe I'll accept that, said Jamie. Just answer me this. When he impersonated Richard Branson, presumably he grew his own beard in the same style as Branson's. Surely he wasn't banking on his witnesses filling in the blanks. No, he had a beard, I said. The interesting thing was, while he was trialling his Branson impersonation, he tested it on various members of this community with a capital C of his. Everyone was in agreement that Noddy's facial hair was much thicker than Branson's, even when you thinned it out 
and dyed it the exact same shade as their targets, it still wasn't convincing, and so they settled for a false one. This was a much better option, tailored to meet their exact specifications. Also, it's worth mentioning that the fake beard itself very nearly blew the whole operation. Well, it didn't fall off, did it? No, the scam itself went without a hitch, which was impressive considering what a high-risk strategy it was. This was more than a simple meeting with a bank manager. With Marshall Grant, Noddy only really had one person who needed convincing it was him. With Branson, he had to walk into the Virgin Head office dressed as Branson on a day that Branson was not scheduled to be there. Not only did he need to get past security, he also needed to convince any colleagues he encountered. Not only that he was Branson, but that he had reason for paying an impromptu visit that day. As Noddy pointed out, he had Branson's own personality on his side. He was an impromptu kind of guy and really didn't need to explain himself. It was his company and he could turn up whenever he wished. It was more complicated than that though because on his walk through the building, Noddy was likely to encounter members of staff who were furnished with the fine details of Branson's schedule and would have been surprised to see him there given that he was due to attend a meeting in Edinburgh that very afternoon. Edinburgh was indeed where the real Richard Branson was at that very moment, stepping off a plane. So it's quite possible the actual Branson could have been on the phone to one of his colleagues in her office, said Jamie. The sight of a Branson impersonator walking past would have killed the whole thing. Absolutely, I said, but still, if he were caught at that point, Noddy planned to pass the whole thing off as a practical joke. He was a local comedian who fancied his chances impersonating a famous guy. To back up this story, Noddy had gone to the trouble of performing stand-up comedy several times on the open mic circuit. It was the early 80s, alternative comedy was the latest buzz phrase. It was a convincing story, that's the handy thing about this kind of heist. Noddy wasn't walking into a bank in a balaclava, shotgun in hand. Instead, he was the embodiment of the expression, hiding in plain sight. And it worked. Noddy located his finance manager, a man he'd never met personally before, but had a whole host of information on the man committed to memory. In the end, none of this information was necessary. Branson advised the finance manager to make the bank transfer, gave him a signed piece of paper as authorisation, and when I say piece of paper, I actually mean the sleeve notes to a first edition copy of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. He even asked the finance manager to frame it and hang it on the wall. You might think that's a bizarre and unnecessary detail, a stupid risk to take considering an official form would have been much more appropriate. But Noddy was in character, he'd captured Branson's essence and he knew filling in a paper document would have been the unconvincing thing to do. Branson himself was wacky and unconventional and so Noddy had to be too. He signed the sleeve notes handed them over, and the rest is history. Later that day, the community received £30 million by a bank transfer. And the beard? Oh yes, the beard. The trouble with the beard was, it was one of those things that needed to be sourced from outside the community. I don't know a great deal about the community, as you know. Noddy was deliberately vague about the whole thing. But one thing I do know is that they had an impressive range of skills. They avoided sourcing outside help at all costs. But Noddy's facial hair was a problem. The community's impressive range of skills unfortunately did not include the creation of false beards. 
and so they made some discreet contact with a company who specialised in advanced prosthetics. They mostly dealt with high-end media projects, TV and film production companies and the like, so I guess they were surprised to hear from a member of the public asking for a bespoke Richard Branson outfit they could wear to a fancy dress party. Noddy made the call himself, claiming to be an old friend of Branson's. He claimed Branson himself would be at the party, a charity event in Chelsea. He wanted to attend the party looking exactly like Branson. It would be hilarious, but worth it. I'm not sure what the prosthetics company made of this joke, but when Noddy mentioned he had a budget of several thousand pounds, they were happy to oblige. He never met them in person. He gave a false name and spoke with an American accent. As a matter of fact, Noddy was using one of his regular personas, Brad Hartley. I met Brad myself when I got out of prison. He's a nice guy. You'll have to explain the persona thing later, said Jamie. I will, I said. I'll tell you about the beard first. Once they'd successfully pulled off the scam and the money had been transferred, Branson apparently reacted in very much the same way Marshall Grant had, despite the fact that he was clearly the victim of a major act of fraud. Branson chose not to pursue criminal charges. If the press had ever got hold of this story, he'd have been done for. You think so? I have no idea, I said, but according to Noddy's sources, that's exactly what Branson thought. He considered himself the master of media manipulation. The idea that all publicity is good publicity had never been part of his game plan. For Branson, every story had to be a positive one. Faced with the fact that an impersonator had successfully stolen £30 million from his company, there was no possible means of positive spin. And so the story had to be buried. The finance manager was paid off handsomely and signed a non-disclosure agreement. Privately, however, Branson wanted to get to the truth. He wanted to know who had committed this frankly ingenious act of fraud. And so a covert operation took place. Private investigators were hired to track down the culprits. The investigators were known to be the best in their field. The way Noddy tells his part is like a scene from a film noir knockoff. Their former police officers who don't play by the rules get the job done, all of that business. So these ex-coppers came in to investigate the crime. The first thing they did was take fingerprints from a tubular bell's sleeve notes. Obviously, Noddy hadn't been wearing gloves. However, there wasn't much they could have done with the prints at the time. No doubt they still had contacts within the police force, but even if they'd used actual police resources, these were the days before the National Database. Even if the National Database had existed, Noddy's prints wouldn't have been on there. Maybe if Marshall Grant had chosen to press charges a few years earlier, the story would have been different. But this is all hypothetical. Where was I? Branson's private investigators, said Jamie. Right, so they were getting nowhere with the fingerprinting. Next, they started to look into possible sources for the Branson outfit. This is where the beard comes in. Branson's private investigators successfully located the company responsible for selling Noddy the beard. The company told them all they knew, which was very little. They had a postal address, which turned out to be a boarded-up corner shop on the outskirts of London, owned by an elderly man with dementia. They had measurements of the customer's face, although they had to admit it was a face they'd never seen in person. They had a name, Brad Hartley, but they added that Brad had told them he was a US citizen and would be unlikely to still be in the country. It doesn't sound like they came particularly close to catching him, said Jamie. It's true, I said they didn't, but Noddy always said this was the closest they ever came to being caught. 
This was the only time he'd ever been fingerprinted. It was also the only time Brad Hartley had been named in an investigation into criminal activity. Noddy considered dropping the persona altogether, but he couldn't bring himself to do so. Brad was a useful person to have as part of his repertoire. He was also, and these are Noddy's words, he was a fun person to be. Can you imagine that? Having all these personas you can just slip in and out of just for fun. I'm still confused about the persona thing, said Jamie. I kind of get it, I suppose. It's like an actor, right? He has a number of parts he can play, and while he's playing them, he kind of becomes that person. Exactly. Benedict talks about parts he's played in the same kind of way as it happens. I can never be sure what he's on about, mind you. I've never actually seen him act. Hang on, said Jamie. Say that again. You've never seen Benedict act? I've never seen Benedict act. You haven't seen any of his films, or TV, or theatre, or, or whatever else there is? Radio? Yeah. Oh, I've heard him on the radio, sure. Do you know Cabin Pressure, the sitcom? It's very good. He was in that. Didn't put two and two together for a while after we met. Then he mentioned it randomly in conversation. I said, oh, right, that was you. Yes, so I suppose I've heard him acting, but I'm yet to see him on screen. He's very good. I'm sure he is. How did we get onto this subject? I was telling you about Richard Branson. I think you've finished the story, unless there's more. I don't think so, I said. Although, there's one final detail, completely unsubstantiated, but I like it nonetheless. Sounds interesting. Noddy had an inside source within Virgin, a person they used to gather information before and after the theft. She was a Virgin employee for a while, a director of some kind who later relied on her contacts within the company to keep her in the know. Some of the information she gathered was questionable, but apparently she heard from more than one source that Branson had considered doing exactly what Marshall Grant had done. Privately, he was furious, frustrated, humiliated, and part of him simply wanted to end it all. Sell up, move away and never be seen again. But Branson was a different kind of character to Grant. Grant liked the sound of his own voice, sure, but he knew when enough was enough. For Branson, whatever it was, whatever he'd achieved, however much money he made, it would never be enough. And so he didn't quit, he carried on. He was very successful, of course, and he'd successfully buried the story of the time he'd been swindled out of 30 million. But one very interesting point, again, an unsubstantiated rumour, but a very interesting one. According to one inside source, the framed sleeve notes for tubular bells, which Noddy signed, are still in Branson's possession. They're displayed on the wall in his house on his private island. If anyone asks why they're there, he'll say something vague about sentimental value. At the very least, I suppose this serves as an indicator that Branson has never forgotten what happened all those decades ago. There was a pause on the line. I wondered if Jamie was still there. Then he said, I have to say, when you claim that some words from your mouth could somehow make up for the fact that you burned down my house and invalidated the insurance policy, I was sceptical. But you know what? You've actually done it, mate. Forget the house. This is absolutely priceless. I'm glad you think so, I said. I do have more questions, he said. Many more questions. Go ahead. My first question is very simple. Simple questions are the best, in my opinion. Good. Go ahead, ask your simple question and I'll try my best to answer it. Okay, said Jamie, here's my simple question. He took a brief intake of breath before bellowing down the line. Don't you see what's going on here? 
What do you mean? I said. Sorry to be so dramatic, said Jamie. I'm just saying I think there's something rather obvious you've been missing this whole time, despite the fact that you and Noddy shared a cell together for six months, and he told you all of these stories. It's true, I said. He did tell me all these stories. I haven't made them up. I'm sure you haven't, he said. But I don't think you've joined all the dots together yet. What dots? Let's consider the evidence, said Jamie. What's Noddy's name? His real one? No idea. He never told me. Where did he go to school? He didn't. That is one of the things he told me. He said he'd never been to school. Don't you think that's a little unusual? He's a pretty unusual guy. He sounds like a very intelligent person, literate and good with numbers. Who educated him? Oh, he was very evasive about that. Again, that's a pretty weird thing to be evasive about, wouldn't you say? Yes, I agree. And this community, said Jamie, who are these people? Your guess is as good as mine. I disagree, he said. My guess is much better than yours. Really? What's your guess? Just think about some of the stories Noddy told. You'll notice a common theme. Think about the man who secretly lives in Buckingham Palace. This isn't just an urban myth. Noddy knows this man's father, who's connected to the community in some way. Then there's the story about the Secret Service. Those five renegade spies. What did they call themselves? The Hand, I said. That's the one. So we know that the Hand aren't directly connected to the community, but the community likes to talk about the Hand and speculate over what might have happened to those people. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Hand were raised in very much the same way that the man who secretly lives in Buckingham Palace was raised, in secret, with no official record of their births. Now, think about Noddy's name. My theory is there's a very good reason Noddy never told you his name. It's because he hasn't got one. He too was raised in secret. These ingenious skills that he has, the impersonations, the ability to fully commit himself to a character or persona, that's what he was trained in. That would explain how he was able to pass himself off as Grant and Branson and the rest. It would explain how he mysteriously disappeared when he had that heart attack. That much is obvious, I said. I mean, it's clear that those two guys who took him away were part of the community. He had a device on him, a tracker or something. They came straight to him. What do you think they did with him? said Jamie. Well, if your theory is correct and Noddy isn't officially a person, the last thing the community would want would be an unidentified body that could trigger a police investigation. They needed to snatch him up and dispose of him in their own way. Have their own private funeral, or whatever they do when a community member dies. What makes you so sure that he's dead? Well, he wasn't looking too healthy. What if the community provide their own medical assistance? They must do. If none of them officially exist, they'd have no access to health care. They'd have to have their own medical training. This is getting pretty far-fetched, I said. I appreciate what you're saying. Sure, there's a chance Noddy could be alive somewhere, but it doesn't seem feasible. Realistically, how many different sets of skills could the community have at their disposal? Do they have their own surgeons, their own cardiologists, anaesthetists, nurses, pharmacists? Noddy would have needed access to all of these things. You're forgetting how much money they had at their disposal, said Jamie. 60 million, just from those two jobs we talked about. There must have been loads more. Surely they could pay for their own private doctors, guys who could provide their services and confidence. I still think we're entering fantasy land here, I said. I believe Noddy died that day and those two guys took him away to be buried. It's just speculation, really, said Jamie. 
I do think I'm right about Noddy's origins, though. I think he was brought up in secret. He doesn't have a name, and that's what the community is. It's a whole network of people without identities who've infiltrated normal society in order to exploit and subvert it. Some of them, like Noddy, do it for profit and to fund the community's operations. Others, like the man who secretly lives in Buckingham Palace, just do it for the hell of it. Hang on a minute, I said. I'm still here, I just need to... I stood up, opened up my bedroom window as wide as it would go, and stuck my head outside, feeling the fresh air on my face. I stared out over Uncle Claw's driveway at the trees beyond. Are you still there? said Jamie. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I said quietly. I'm wondering why I never thought of that myself. Don't be hard on yourself, he said. Sometimes you need to tell someone else a story in order for it to make sense. I had therapy once, a counsellor told me that. It did make sense. I think you're right, I said thoughtfully. It was true that I'd kept all of Noddy's stories to myself over the years. It took me a long time to get over Noddy's death, and by the time I'd done that, the stories had become trapped inside of me, as though they were unspeakable secrets. I suppose one of my reasons for writing this series of books is that the stories just needed to escape, and it's rare to find a person like Jamie who'll listen with an open mind. Are you okay? He said. I'm fine, I said. You've just given me a lot to think about, so I think I'd better go off and think. Cool. Well, thanks for the story. It was a good one. Glad you liked it. And once again, sorry for burning your house down. I'd forgotten about that. In that case, sorry I brought it up. That's okay. Thank you for listening. You can move straight on to episode 4 now if you like, or you can stick around for the optional bonus content that will appear right after the theme song. It's called the footnote section. It is great. Check it out if you like, or I will see you in episode 4. If you like what you have heard, please visit my website, frankburton.co.uk, for more information about me and my work. I have another podcast called I Like the Sound. I've written several books, including the first two installments of the Ragbag series, Everything I Am and Getting Away With It. I recently made a four-part podcast series with David Evar from the band Herman Dune. It is called Not On Top, and it is very good indeed. I will see you all very soon.
So here we are again, it's the footnotes section. I do hope you're enjoying these footnotes uh, bits and pieces. I have recently decided that I'm going to, I was going to release all these episodes once a week. I think I'm just going to drop them all at once. So there is no opportunity for you to feedback to me on <laughs> I'm recording all of the, uh, the footnotes before uh, any of them go out so there is no opportunity for you to feedback to me and tell me whether or not you like it because I'm just going to record them all and release the whole thing as a series and just do it straight away which is kind of it's not necessarily the done thing particularly with podcasts is it podcasts are generally kind of uh, have a release schedule but I have another podcast that I'm keen to get back to and release once a week and having to release this other one once a week as well, as I just can't be bothered to do it. I, I know that I can also schedule it. There, there are ways of not having to press that button once a week. You can automatically schedule it to appear. But I feel a bit apprehensive about doing that because if I take my eye off the ball, I don't know. I just feel to hell with it. You know, I'm just going to release them all. Who cares? No one, I suspect. Um, in fact, I think a lot of people would prefer that. As a matter of fact, I would prefer that a lot, it, especially if it's like a, a narrative, narrative-based show. I don't want to wait for the next week to listen to the thing. I've kind of got used to that with TV shows now, just seeing the whole thing as, as one. You know, I'm going to wait for next week. Who does that, man? Who does that? No one. So there you go. I will get on with the references uh, in a minute. I just will tell you, I was, um, just while it's popped into my mind, I was driving through Manchester yesterday and I saw, I was in a part of the city that I'm not familiar with and I, I drove past this sign, I, th- I think it was the sign on the side of a building that is now derelict and it was, <sighs> you're going to have to get in touch and correct me, uh, if there's anyone local to me who can tell me about this. The company was called Mega Computers, I think. I was actually at a red light so I got a good look at the sign on the side of this building and I pondered over it for a while while I was waiting for the light to go green and uh, the sign said the company I think was called Mega Computers if I remember correctly and the tagline underneath it I kid you not was the best computers if anyone can that's right the best computers if anyone can I, th- I kind of half remembered it as the best computers in the world, if anyone can. <laughs> Which I suspect that I, I was embellishing there with the best computers in the world, if anyone can. But there you have it. I mean, it's, it's a very strange use of English, that, isn't it? I think I'm not sure who put that sign together, whether English is their first language or if there was some kind of miscommunication with the sign printers. <laughs> it feels like the sort of thing that's been put through google translate doesn't it that bit it's a, it's a proper sign it's on the side of the building i mean no wonder they've closed down i mean no that that's that that's that's a very uh cruel thing to say obviously and um i apologize for saying it it's the thing is that the the snob comes out in me with this the, the grammar snob and i do not like this part of myself but i i've said this before on uh on, on another rambly thing that i've recorded for podcast I just it just comes out it comes out because it's intrinsically within me now that you have to when you write books you have to have the grammar completely correct otherwise 
I do my own editing and my own proofreading now as well. So I haven't got that safety net of having somebody else check it all over for me. But there, there is a part of me that really likes that, the use of language on that sign, that the fact that they've said the best computers, if anyone can. And it doesn't make any sense at all, but I understand what they're trying to say. They're trying to say that they are a company, they're called mega computers, you know. They, they, do, they do really good computers, man. You know, that's what they're trying to say. Where, you know, they might as well just say, we, look, we, we sell computers and they're really good computers. You know what I mean? They're, they're just really good. You know, it, instead they went with this kind of awkwardly worded slogan, which, um, you know, it's obviously a team effort as well. I mean, it can't just be one person. I mean, they've got to send this off to the people who design and print the thing to go on the side of the building. So it's more than one person's mistake. It's not just one person's mistake. It's several people, I suspect. But again, I, I like it. I think I wish I could let this go. You know, I think I wish I could let this whole grammar thing go because it's not useful in the real world, particularly. It's not useful in conversation. I mean, nobody likes nobody likes to have the grammar corrected in conversation, do they? It's, the thing is about conversation is that you can you can just say whatever you want to say and it doesn't matter whether it's grammatically correct or not because it's just there for a moment and then it's gone. I'm aware of the fact that I'm talking now into a recording and then that, that recording is there forever. So if, if I make a grammatical inaccuracy on this recording... But again, you know, it's who cares? It's a, it's, it's a podcast, it's a... It's a disposable medium in it, in a way, you know, and it's kind of like I, what I like about podcasting is that it is just like a conversation. So what sometimes podcasting can be like a conversation. For the most part, this podcast is a very tightly scripted and grammatically correct bit. And I've got this bit at the end that I uh, just kind of ramble on about. And in the in the last bit of the podcast, i.e. this bit. I can be as grammatically incorrect as I like, but in the main bit, I have to really pay attention to it because I'm releasing the main bit as an actual book. What am I saying? What point am I trying to make here? I don't know. I just wanted to tell you about the sign that I saw because <laughs> it's in my head. It's in my head. I was trying to think of it. Let's go into the uh, references for this week. Uh, what cultural references has there been? Has there been? You see what I did there? I said the wrong word. I'm staying on topic. What cultural references have there been within this episode of Ragbag Presents? Well, of course, we've mentioned Richard Branson. I think we don't need to say any more about him, really. I think everybody knows who Richard Branson is. Do they? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> There's a little joke in there about, um, I don't know if, if everybody got that, but uh, one of the few things that I actually know about Richard Branson is that he has this whole thing about he pretends that he doesn't know the difference between net and gross. Obviously he does because he's an intelligent man. But um, I've seen him in it, uh, when I've seen him interviewed on TV. As a matter of fact, he said it in court once as well. He was, uh, I read this in private eye. I can't remember the details. He was in court and he literally said under oath, I presume, that he doesn't know the difference between net and gross. He's the CEO of a company, of course he knows the difference between net and gross. He's just trying to be a man of the people. 
obviously he's not a man of the people. He's got his own private island. But um, he's a very fascinating man, really. I mean, like I say, I don't know very much about him, but what I do know, it kind of fascinates me, that character of Richard Branson. And uh, it, was, it was good fun to kind of write about him and uh, have this kind of... Um, I was kind of writing about him in kind of a third-hand way through the Noddy um, character, so it's kind of interesting. I can come up with this kind of weird caricature of Richard Branson through Noddy's eyes, I suppose. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, Michael Phil's Tubular Bells was referenced as well. Um, I believe that's uh, what, one of the key reasons why Richard Branson is such a rich man today is that he started out at Virgin Records in... Um, mouthful, isn't it? Mike Old... <laughs> I can't say it. Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. I've never heard it. Never heard that album. Um, I think I've probably heard like I mean, a track or two from it, and it's, it's quite nice, isn't it? Quite nice. Uh, it was a big hit in the um, in the nineteen seventies. You see, I've done my research, haven't I? I don't even know when it was. I guess sometime in the nineteen seventies. Whatever is Mike Oldfield up to nowadays? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've done no research. Uh, Brad Hartley, that was, of course, uh, harking back to Brad Hartley's first appearance in the Ragbag series was in the novel Everything I Am. He's one of Noddy's personas, uh, as has been established. And uh, if you'd like to find out more about Brad Hartley or see him in action, I suppose, you can uh, go back to Everything I Am. Check that out. Cabin Pressure, the Radio 4 sitcom. You know about this, right? This is, um, I guess Benedict wasn't famous when he was doing Cabin Pressure, so it's kind of interesting. It was kind of a radio comedy, and it was before he, um, I guess Benedict made a name for himself. I'm, I'm sure he was famous for doing other things before it, but kind of the big TV hit that he had was Sherlock. That was the first time I was kind of aware of him anyway, and um, then Obviously, he's had a huge kind of movie career since then. But before all of that was uh, the sitcom Cabin Pressure. And I uh, suggest that you check it out. It was uh, a lot of fun. BBC Radio 4. That's pretty much it, really, um, for the references. Not too many of them this time, I suppose. But um, it's kind of a shorter episode, just the way it's worked out. So I guess we ought to just move straight on to cliché of the week, which um, I um, I invented that uh, in the last episode. I thought, yeah, let's do a cliché every week and talk about it. Now, last week's cliché was the um, recovering addict who always, without fail, falls off the wagon. Since then, literally a couple of days after I recorded that, I went off on one not for the first time by the way I've, I've gone off on one about this before um on the ragbag podcast actually on the um which episode was it i'll give you the reference for that as well all the way back to episode 37 of ragbag which was called recovery and i, t- I basically had a, a a big long rant about this <laughs> in, in that episode as well so i've been going on about this for quite some time uh this was uh, a good two years ago at the very least that I was uh, going off on one about 
the way that recovering addicts are portrayed in film and TV in particular. And um, obviously last time I was going off on one about it as well, literally two days after I recorded that, I came across this this article in The Guardian about, um, it's called You Booze, You Lose, The Rise of Sober Curious TV. And uh, what do you know, it is such a thing. It says here, um, TV's most compelling heroines are currently kicking the habit. Thanks to shows like The Flight Attendant, alcohol-free television is where it's at for fascinating, action-packed viewing. Now, if you've seen The Flight Attendant, it's absolutely great. I'm actually halfway through the, the second season of it. Now, the, the main character in The Flight Attendant for the first season was basically a fully functional alcoholic. And there was a, a lot of stuff about the addiction side of things within that as well. Now, the second season, what is happening is that she is completely sober. She's in AA and... Uh, I'm halfway through the second season of The Flight Attendant and as yet this cliche has not dropped. They haven't done it. They, ha they haven't let her fall off the wagon. There's been a lot of talk about sobriety and that they, they've um, approached the subject in a, in a very interesting way in terms of going, literally going into the character's head and seeing the different versions of the character, the drunk version and the sober version, having an argument with each other. And uh, it's, it's a great show, The Flight Attendant. I think it's uh, one of the best TV shows of recent years. And it's deceptively light-hearted, I would say. That's how I would describe it. It's very kind of funny and quirky and really silly. Very, very silly show. But there really is a lot of complexity at work in there as well in the like, literally going into the character's head and really kind of examining what kind of makes her tick and what the influences have been from the past and the present and her relationship with alcohol and her relationship with people and herself and just really kind of going into a whole heap of really kind of introspective detail about this one person amidst this very, very silly kind of crime caper, kind of thriller type thing. It's very, very light-hearted, but also there's a lot of darkness there. I, re I really like that. And I, like I say, I'm halfway through the second season. As yet, she has not fallen off the wagon. I do hope that she doesn't, because I'll be disappointed purely from, uh, you know, th there may be dramatic reasons for her to do that and maybe it would work within that context but in terms of the cliche of the week that I outlined last week it's a no-no in my opinion so let's fingers crossed that she stays on the wagon just for the sake of originality because it, it never happens like I was saying last time um, now there's a couple of other things that I've not seen so I can't really comment on what they're like there's a show called single drunk female about recovering addicts and there's also one called the dry not heard of either of them uh, they sound very interesting I'm, I'm sure that they are maybe they are maybe they're not i can't comment i just don't know but uh there you have it so there's an update <laughs> i didn't think i'd have to be when i started this cliche of the week thing i didn't think that the following week i'd have to retract the whole thing and do like an update 
but actually I was wrong. Here are three recent examples of why I am wrong. I don't want to have to do that every week. Sober curious, that's an interesting term. I don't know what that, sober curious. Don't know what that means really. So what cliche shall we go with for this week's cliche? I don't know. I think maybe I was thinking about um, revenge. <laughs> I was thinking about revenge. That's what I was thinking of. Thinking about taking revenge against all the people that have wronged me. No, I was thinking about the revenge as a motivation for a character and how kind of naff that is and how kind of uninteresting that is a lot of the time. That if if a character is motivated purely by wanting to take revenge on another person, it's just not that interesting, is what I'm trying to say. Um, it doesn't make for an interesting character. I mean, there are interesting things that you can do with that concept. And there's been plenty of examples that will prove me wrong. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to dig myself a hole right now because many examples are popping into my head of kind of really great revenge plots within fiction that have worked really well. And really, I don't think a character can be truly compelling unless you don't really know what their motivations are. And if you know what a character's motivations are and the motivations are really simple, they stop being a compelling character in a lot of ways. I think I'll probably use some examples of things that I've read and seen that where revenge is used as a character's primary motivation and why that is interesting but also why that has its limits. I've been watching the film um, Killing of a Sacred Deer. Is that what it's called? Yes, it is. That's basically about a revenge plot. And the character who's taken the... It's kind of... Uh, the characters are all really kind of interesting and weird and they kind of behave in... The dialogue is kind of like deliberately really odd and um, kind of strangely delivered. By it. So it's kind of like a, a weird sort of heightened realism, which... Uh, I really enjoyed. It doesn't turn out that it's a revenge plot until about halfway through anyway. So uh, until until that becomes clear, then the character is very interesting. And once you realise that it's purely motivated by revenge, it becomes a bit less interesting for me. You see what I mean? It's kind of like, oh, okay, so that's what he's about. I thought it was more complicated than that. I thought it was a bit more interesting than that. <laughs> but um, really, he, he's just one of takes this guy has killed his father and he wants to take revenge because he feels like there needs to be some retribution for his father's death. But it's, it's kind of, um, that is the whole premise of the film and it's based on the kind of a Greek myth and stuff like that. So it's quite a highbrow concept. It's, it's good, but also it's, it has its limits, I think. I'd much rather, I'd much rather see a character who you don't know why are they doing that? And maybe that question is never answered. Or maybe there's there's just a, a much more complicated reason behind it than my father's dead and I'm angry about it. What else? I mean, there's so many other ones that are, are actually really great works of fiction. 
that I mean the the one that really just popped into my head now is um the cook the thief his wife and her lover which is uh I would recommend it because I think it's one of the best films ever made but I mean it really is it really is a really disturbing movie <laughs> um really it really kind of stuck with me for a very long time after I watched that I've really kind of had it in my head for a long time afterwards i was really just kept on replaying bits of it to myself i found it quite disturbing i suppose there is kind of quite graphic violence in it yeah but i think it was more to do with uh, the way that it was performed i guess uh michael gambon again i mentioned michael gambon last week i think as well um because he was in the scene exactly he was in this as well um the great michael gambon um it's such a scary character and uh, play by Michael Gambon with such kind of kind of psychotic. Uh, you you really kind of well went with it. You really kind of felt that he was this guy. You know, he's such a great actor. Yeah, at the end, I just want to spoil the ending for you. But um, at the end is a whole kind of everybody that he has wronged in the movie, which is a lot of people, kind of take their revenge upon him at the end and uh i think they kind of roast him on a spit and eat him yeah they, they, they basically eat him at the end yeah um i think i suspect that that is uh, that's probably another kind of greek myth style thing that that they've taken up there i'll have to check that out actually i'm not sure i'm sure there's some kind of classical reference to that ending of that film where, where they eat michael gambon but yeah great great film that great film but the thing is that the revenge part of the film is just kind of in the last five minutes it's not uh, nobody is really motivated by wanting to take revenge upon the Michael Gambon character they're just uh, trying to kind of escape from him really that is the thing yeah that they, they just want to kind of get away from this crazy guy and um, they eventually do get away from him and then just just for the hell of it they eat him at the end so that works out pretty well you know I think part of the reason why why that character is that I don't know the name of the character sorry uh, I should have done more research here I'm just going to call him the Michael Gambon character but um, the reason why that character is is such a compelling character that kind of sticks in your mind and like I say it stuck in my mind for such a long time after I watched it I think one of the reasons is that you don't know why he's doing all of this stuff I mean he's just uh, he's just being kind of really gratuitously violent towards everyone that he meets and just really kind of psychotically angry for no apparent reason and uh, it's not done in a way that would lead you to suspect that he's mentally ill or it's it's not like a mental health thing he's not like um yeah he, he's not in need of a doctor he's he's just that's just what he's like <laughs> it's just his personality that's what he's like and why is he like that we don't know it's not just revenge either it's just when a character is motivated just by one thing like if a character is lonely and they want companionship so they'll do whatever they can to get somebody to love them 
it's not exactly a cliche. You see it all the time. I mean, there's a lot of characters who are like that. I just think that there are limits to it. There are limits to what you can do with that. And I would rather see someone who it's not quite as straightforward as that, you know. Maybe maybe they're a bit lonely. Maybe loneliness is relative. And there are other factors at play as well. They they want other things. They don't just want to be with other people. They actually quite like being on their own. You know, having that ambivalence between I've written about this as well, um, in other books particularly in the books what particularly in my novel One Hundred, I write about this uh, as one of the key themes of um actually just wanting to pursue solitude as a thing that is an end in itself. The joys of solitude versus, you know, the uh, the benefits of being around other folks. You know, that kind of ambivalence, that's kind of uh, what is interesting to me. And uh, kind of uh, having a character who's caught between two different states and can't make up the mind between this or that that's kind of always more interesting to me than somebody who's who's got a motivation in mind and they want this particular thing and their purpose for being is to achieve this thing but again there's there's different levels aren't there i mean it can be you can have that motivation in your head and it can just be kind of hidden away uh, so it it's not necessarily clear what the character wants. I think what I'm trying to say is I just like it when things are a bit confusing and a bit weird. That's uh, that's my bag. Don't know about you, but um, wasn't exactly the most cliched of cliches this time. But um, there you have it. You know what I mean. More cliches next time. And obviously the uh, the proper episode next time as well is a great one. Tune in for that. Um, I will see you very, very soon. Over and out.